There, there are certain things that we all know are true, and then to deny these things would be foolishness or insanity. Right? There are certain truths we all know these are true. So, for example, we know that the earth is round. And to say that the earth is flat is a crazy thing to say. Right? We know the earth is round. We have proof of this. We know uh, that the earth revolves around the sun. We know for a fact that the moon is not made of cheese. Right? We know this. We know that Bigfoot is not real. Those are blurry photos of something else. The Bigfoot is not real. We also know Coke is better than Pepsi. These are certain truths that are can only a fool would deny them. Just want to divide us right from the start. In the Greco-Roman world, there were also truths that were true, and if you denied them, you were insane. And one of those truths that everybody knew was true in the Greco-Roman world is that when you die, you stay dead. That when you die, your body stays in the ground and it doesn't get back up. That was the prevailing belief of the Greco-Roman world. Now, they may believe that like, the soul or spirit or part of you might carry on, but this physical part of you, your body, once you die, it stays dead. That was an unassailable truth that all believed. But it was not what Christians believed. It was not what the apostles proclaimed. The apostles proclaimed something quite different. The apostles proclaimed that in Jesus Christ there is a resurrection. And not just spiritual resurrection, but bodily, that Christians, those who are in Christ when they die, will one day be raised again, their bodies raised to live forevermore. That was part of the gospel that was proclaimed that made Christians sound insane to the world around them. We believe in a resurrection for all believers. Some, however, in the church had denied that belief and gone with the worldly thinking around them and started to deny the resurrection of the body. And that is what Paul deals with in our text this morning. He wants to address those in the Corinthian church who had denied the bodily resurrection and correct them and state why we must believe in the resurrection. So that is our goal this morning. Very simply, we want to walk through the, this text, verses 12 through 34, and show why we must believe in the resurrection. And I'm going to give five reasons that come out of this text. Five reasons we must believe in the resurrection. If we are Christians, if we're going to have hope, we must have hope in the resurrection that all who die in Christ will be raised again. This is our hope. It's the hope the world needs. It is the hope we must believe in. And I'll give you five reasons why. Five reasons we must believe in the resurrection. The first is the foundational reason, the most obvious reason that Paul gives in verses 12 through 16. The first reason we must believe in the resurrection is that Christ is not raised without the resurrection. A very logical truth. If Christ is not raised, we have no faith. If there is no resurrection, then we have no resurrected Jesus. So the first reason we must believe in the resurrection is because Christ is not raised without the resurrection. We see that in verses 12 through 16. I'll read that from the ESV. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So Paul's logic here is very simple, very undeniable. If you say that there is no resurrection of the dead, then you're saying not even Christ has been raised because he resurrected from the dead. So Paul wants the church to think through the consequences of their belief. If you deny the resurrection, you deny the resurrection of Christ. And that is one of the core truths of our faith. It's one of the things that makes our belief, our Christian faith, distinct. We do not worship or follow a dead leader. So we say every Easter Sunday, he is risen, he is risen indeed, because we worship a God, a man who is very much alive. Muhammad, the prophet, his body is in the ground. Joseph Smith is still buried. Right? I'm going to say this wrong, but Siddhartha Gautama, the, 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 the first Buddha, the founder of Buddhism, that's a dead guy, and his body remains dead, just like all other leaders of all other faiths. But our leader, our God, our Lord, is alive, not just in spirit, but in body. He is a ruling, living God. And if Jesus is not raised, then that is bad news for us. And Paul says our preaching is in vain. The gospel we proclaim is in vain. It's, it's pointless. It means nothing. We're even found to be speaking wrongly about God because the apostles proclaimed that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if that didn't happen, if there's no resurrection, then they were lying about God, and you can throw away the whole gospel message if there is no resurrection. Not only that, you can throw away your whole Christian life if there is no resurrection. If there's no bodily resurrection, then... Our whole faith is in vain. Think about that claim. How much of your life has been dedicated to the truth of Christianity? I'm talking to Christians here in the room. Those of you who are here, instead of sleeping on a Sunday morning, you got up because Jesus got up first. Right? Everything you do for the church, for other Christians, for the cause of Christ, for Christianity, and you do a lot. I, mean, I would encourage you some week, just the, the normal average CBC or calculate how many hours a week you spend serving the church, praying for other people, contacting others. You, and I say this to your credit as an encouragement, you are dedicated to the Lord and to his people. And you sacrifice a lot for the cause of the gospel. And all of that would be totally pointless and dumb if Jesus is not raised. All of that is a total waste of time if there is no resurrection. If Christ is not raised, then all we do is a lie. A pointless waste of time and energy. And I love that Paul just lays it out like that. Here is the self-destruct button of Christianity. If we find conclusively that Jesus is still buried 
then throw all of this away. If we learn that beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did not rise from the dead, then this 2,000 years of Christian history has all been for nothing. And all your faith is in vain. It's the test of Christianity. If you're not a Christian, here's where I tell you to start. Do you believe, do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? If he didn't, discard Christianity. If he did, then that changes everything. If he didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. In fact, there's no salvation for us, and that's what Paul gets to in verses 17 through 19. Why must we believe in the resurrection? Because we are not saved without resurrection. And that's Paul's point in verses 17 through 19. We are not saved without resurrection. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't save us from our sins. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what Paul's saying. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he actually didn't save us from our sins. The apostles preached that Christ died on the cross and was resurrected for our, our salvation. If he wasn't resurrected, then that whole message is a lie. The whole gospel is a lie. And he didn't actually die for our sins. And if Christ didn't pay for our sins, then we are still in our sins. We're still under judgment, under God, for our sins. And we have no salvation in Christ. We only have judgment before God. That is the significance of the resurrection. It seals our salvation. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 4.25. This is actually an interesting verse. You don't have to go there. You can just listen. But Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That Christ was raised for our justification. Normally, when we think of being justified, being declared righteous and holy, it's because of Christ's death on the cross that makes us holy, that pays for our sins. But Paul says that even his resurrection has to do with our justification. Why and how? What's, what's the link there? The resurrection seals our justification because the resurrection is proof, is evidence that the work on the cross was sufficient. What I mean by that is, because God raised Jesus from the dead, and Christ is living and alive, it is God's yes and amen to the work Jesus did on the cross. It is God saying, he doesn't have to stay dead because he's done the work of paying for our sins. Sins have been paid for. They no longer need to be paid for. The work on the cross was enough. It is done. It is finished. And the resurrection is proof that God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. Paul talks about the resurrection being vindication, that the Spirit vindicated Jesus Christ in the resurrection. 
It's an announcement. The resurrection is an announcement, a proclamation to all the world that the sins have been paid for on the cross. Jesus paid it all, and we know this because his death was finished. He's no longer dead, but alive and living. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, For if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now the resurrection is God declaring his satisfaction. He thereby declared that it was enough. Christ was thereby released from his work. How do we know Jesus' work on the cross paid for all of our sins? Because God raised him from the dead as proof. If he was not raised, then we'd still be in our sins. We'd need more. More death for our sins. And all who have died in Christ would stay dead, still under judgment. If Jesus was not raised and if sins were not paid for, we would have no hope for salvation in the future. All of our hope would just be for life on this earth. None of our hope would be in the future or in future salvation and resurrection. We just have hope in this life only. And Paul says, if our hope is in this life only... We are most to be pitied. And I love what Paul says here. Because what Paul is saying is, if all your hope is in this life, woe is you. It is a good, healthy reminder that our hope ain't here. And that's a reminder we need. It's a reminder I need. Because very often I find myself wanting my hope to be here and frustrated when here isn't working out. How much stress and worry and anxiety is caused by the fact that I think that here should be perfect. And I get stressed and I worry and I get anxious when I find that here isn't perfect. That sickness still reigns. That death is still around the corner. That things aren't the way they ought to be. That I'm not who I should be yet. And neither are others. And when I find myself overly frustrated, overly worried, overly anxious about the state of things in this world, it's because I've forgotten where my hope lies and I've been discipled more by beer commercials than the Bible. I've bought into this American dream that life should be perfect here. And the Bible never promises that. God never promises that. Yes, we'll experience good things. God's a good God and he lets rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. And there are many pleasures in this world that are God-given and good. But do not be mistaken. If your hope is only in this life, woe, woe is us. Our hope lies beyond in the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, we don't have that hope. Spurgeon says it well about our hope not being in this life. He says, Is there nothing to sing about today? Then borrow a song from tomorrow. Sing of what is yet to be. Our song is the song of resurrection. That's why we believe in it. Thirdly, because... We will be raised in resurrection. So now Paul turns away from the hypothetical negatives and he turns towards the positive. He's saying, 
here's the reality. If Christ hasn't been raised, if we are dead in our sins with no hope of resurrection, then our faith is futile, and Christ is still dead, we don't have any hope for salvation. That's the bad news if the resurrection isn't real and if Christ has not been raised. But now let's turn a corner. Here's the truth. Despite what the Greco-Roman world said around them, here's the truth. Christ has been raised, and he is alive. And if that is true, then we will be raised in resurrection. That's Paul's point in verses 20 through 23. Because Christ has been raised and is raised and is living, we will be raised in resurrection with him. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. So here's the good news, the truth. Christ is raised, and if he is raised, if we are in him, we will be raised with him. And last week I made an offhand comment about four minute miles, and then it got me thinking. The first person to run a four minute mile was Roger Bannister, and he did it in 1954. Now, I don't know how long we've been measuring miles or how long we've been running races. Uh, in that length and recording it. So I, I don't know how far back recorded history goes, but for all of recorded history on this subject, until 1954, nobody had ever done this, as far as we know. Nobody had run a four-minute mile. And then, in 1954, one guy does it. And then you know what happened two months later? Another guy did it. All of human history, nobody's done this. 1954, somebody does it, then all of a sudden, somebody else can do it. In fact, in a race with Roger Bannister. And then since then, almost 1,700 men have done this. Up until 1954, nobody. One guy does it, breaks the barrier, then 1,700 cents have run a four-minute mile. It just took one to break the barrier, and then once it happened, others followed suit. So it is with us in resurrection. Nobody had ever been resurrected from the dead to live forever. And then one guy did it. By the power of God, God raised Jesus from the dead. And then because he did it, we all who are in him can follow in his footsteps without all the training that runners have to do. We can follow in the footsteps of Christ and be raised with him. All of us are born into death. So all of us come from the same parents. If we go back far enough, we all descend from Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, death came to all of us. Sin came to all of us. And all of us born in Adam, if you're a human, you're a son or a daughter of Adam, and if you're born in him, you're born into death and you will die. That is true for all people born in Adam. And it is equally true that all people born in Christ will live. Everybody who is under the headship of the Lord Jesus will be raised again. Just as all who are born in Adam will die, all who are born in Christ will be raised again. And that is good news for us. And Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. So what does that mean? 
first fruits are kind of the, the first fruit that comes in a crop and a harvest, and the condition of those first fruits will tell you what the rest is going to be like. The first fruits are good, then you know the rest of the crop is likely going to be good. And the rest of the crop will be like those first fruits. Well, Christ is the first fruits of his resurrection. His resurrection shows us what ours will be like. Be like him, who is the first fruits. He's the first, and he also is an example of what the rest will be like. And because his resurrection was bodily, so ours will be also. It's important, those scenes in the Bible after the resurrection where Jesus eats with people, touches people, others touch him. It shows that his resurrection wasn't just spiritual, but in the flesh. And it also promises us that we and him will be raised in the flesh also. And that is good news for people whose bodies are failing them, which ultimately is all of us. Good news for those who suffer from illness chronically. Good news for those who are aging and increasingly feeling aches and pains and conditions of poor health. Good news for those of us born with disabilities that are never going to be healed this side of heaven. Good news for those of us who are frustrated by our physical weakness and limitations. The good news is that in Christ, your body will be made new for eternity. And this pain you're experiencing is temporary. And there is something better beyond. Romans 8.18 The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The physical suffering you feel now one day won't even matter in light of what you will experience in the resurrection with Christ, the first fruits of our resurrection. We will be raised in resurrection and Christ will reign in resurrection. That's the point of verses 24 through 28. When will that bodily resurrection happen? When will we be raised with him? It'll finally happen when Christ in all of his patience has finished the work of putting every enemy under his feet. It's the fourth reason we must believe in the resurrection because Christ will reign in resurrection. Look at verse 24 with me. Verses 24 through 28. Paul says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, under Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So the language there is confusing and repetitive, but basically it's very simple. At the culmination of this fallen world, Christ the King will hand the kingdom back to the Father. But he will not hand it over until he has completed his cosmic mission. And that mission of Christ the King is to put every 
rebel power under his feet. Jesus the King will defeat all the enemies of God as he makes him a footstool under his feet. That, that language comes from Psalm 110, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The image is Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, the King, who will put all enemies under his feet. And doesn't that remind you of Genesis 3? The promise that one would come who was born of a human who would crush the serpent's head, who would put his foot on the head of the serpent. That is King Jesus, and he is doing that work. When Paul talks about every rule and authority and power, that he is talking about spiritual forces, he's talking about demonic things. He's saying every spiritual force in opposition to God one day will finally be put under the feet of King Jesus. And then he will take care of the last enemy, the greatest enemy, death itself, and banish it forever. So that all who are raised with him will be raised not just to life, but to power, and to the rule and reign of Jesus forever. That is only possible because Christ is raised. This is our great hope, isn't it? That one day, finally, a good and righteous king will do what no other leader could do, and make the world perfect and good and rid us of all evil. We know what it's like to live under imperfect leaders. We have some governmental leaders that we may prefer over others, and some are better than others. But no matter how good any human leader we may have, no matter how good he or she is, none are so good and so powerful that they can make a righteous and good world. We don't have any kind of leader. And because of that, we are destined in this world to always live in corruption and sin and wickedness because they can never finally and fully be put away by any human leader or any human institution. We cannot bring about the kingdom of God by our power. It can only be done by the rule and reign and power of Jesus Christ. So he is where our hope lies. And you might say, well, why hasn't it happened yet? What's taken him so long? That is a good and biblical question. It's the same question the angels ask under the throne in Revelation 6. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, King Jesus, until you finally, fully make everything right? What is the answer those saints are given in Revelation 6? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Why is King Jesus taking so long to finally do away with all evil and to perfectly enact his rule and reign? Why is it taking him so long? He says, hold on a little longer. My church isn't full yet. There are more who need to come 
more I am drawing, more who will be part of our number of saints and martyrs who live and die for Jesus Christ. And when his patience has run out and when God's church is full and only the Father knows when that will be, at that time, Jesus will end all wickedness, put away all death, and hand a perfect kingdom back to the Father. In the same way a sword is put back in its sheath, Jesus will have finished the work of cutting down his enemies, and all will be at peace under the perfect rule and reign of Jesus Christ. God will be all in all. The complete goodness and perfection of God himself will be infused in all of creation as he makes all things right. And you have none of that without the resurrection. The resurrection is our future hope. And our hope is in the fact that Christ will reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The resurrection is our future hope, and it also has bearing in our life today, and that's what Paul finishes with, verses 29 through 34. The resurrection gives us future hope, and it also has something to say to our lives presently. It impacts how we live here and now. And because of the resurrection, we have purpose today. We have purpose today in resurrection. Our future resurrection gives purpose and meaning to our life here on earth. We have purpose today in resurrection. That's Paul's point in verses 29 through 34. He says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In all these verses, Paul's getting at the essential point that the future resurrection should impact our lives today. He's saying, in fact, it has impacted some, and some carry out this practice of being baptized on behalf of the dead. And here's where I say to you, I have no idea what this means. Uh, This is one of those classic, confusing verses that nobody knows exactly what Paul is talking about. He says in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? One commentator said there are over 40 different interpretations of this. And we're going to go through all of them now. Uh, now, um, I'll give you one bad one and two good ones. How's that? And then you can research the rest. One of the common thoughts, one of the common ways of interpreting this, which I don't think is a good interpretation of it, is that maybe what was going on is people were being baptized for the salvation of unbelievers who have died. That they thought that maybe vicariously, if they were baptized, they could kind of be baptized to you know, spring the souls of those in captivity after they had passed, and that would somehow give them salvation. So they're being baptized on their behalf. 
Um, there was an early group of Christians called the Marcionites who practiced this. And I think, I could be wrong here, but I think it's a Mormon idea and practice of being baptized on behalf of the dead. And it comes from this verse. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. It's possible, but I think if that's the practice that Paul was referring to, he would say something critical of it because we would know from the rest of our New Testament theology that you can't save people after they have passed. You can't do anything to die in their place or anything like that. Jesus has already done that. That's his work, not ours. So I don't think that's what is happening or what Paul's talking about. Otherwise, I think he would say something critically about it. So I'll give you two possibilities of what he might be talking about. He may be referring to a practice of people who were being baptized on behalf of dead Christians who had died before they had the chance to be baptized. So let's say a group of people come to faith and then plague hits and they die and pass very quickly before they had a chance to be baptized. And then their friends, the Christians left behind, say, I'm not saving them by being baptized for them, but just doing this to honor them to be baptized on their behalf uh, since they never had the chance to on earth. So it's not grounded on a theology of I can save them by my works or anything like that. It's just a way to honor those who were dead, who didn't have the chance to be baptized before they died, but they were believers and we're doing that as a way of remembering them. Maybe that's what's happening here and I could see Paul referencing that without criticizing it or condemning the practice. Another possible way to interpret this is to say that, and to translate this differently and say you're baptized on account of the dead which is a perfectly justifiable way to translate this. You could translate the verse baptized on behalf of the dead, or you could translate it just as easily and just as um, exegetically responsibly. You could translate it, they are baptized on account of the dead, which would be a way of saying inspired by, motivated by those who had died in Christ, some were getting baptized. So for example, if there were family members, of a Christian who had died. And those family members said, I know they're going to be resurrected in Christ and inspired by their baptism and their resurrection and their belief, I myself are being moved to be baptized and to come to faith knowing that I'll see them in the resurrection. So their Christianity, the dead, the deceased, on account of what they experienced and they believed, I myself am going to come to faith, believe, be baptized, knowing I'll see them in the resurrection. That could be what Paul is referring to. Now, however you interpret it, the reality is there's a group of people, Christians, who believed in the resurrection, and that's why they were getting baptized. And Paul's basic point is, if they didn't believe in the resurrection, they wouldn't be getting baptized. All this to say, you who don't believe in the resurrection, explain their practice. Explain why all these people are getting baptized if there is no resurrection. You're in the wrong. There is a resurrection. That's why we're getting baptized in the first place. Because Jesus died and was raised, and we are raised in him, and that's why we come to faith in him. And it should impact how we live today. And Paul says it impacts how I live. I die every day, Paul says. I give my life to this gospel every day. And Paul did shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, persecuted, and eventually executed for this faith. And Paul says, I don't do any of that if Christ is not resurrected and if we are not resurrected in him. 
the fact of future resurrection impacts my life today and I give everything to the Lord because I know I'll be resurrected to Him. And it should impact our morality as well. It should impact our ethics. The future resurrection we have should change the way we live now. So, If you knew who would win the Super Bowl, what would you do? Bet. Immediately. That's the, the correct and first and right answer. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt who was going to win the Super Bowl, the first responsible thing to do is go to a casino, <laughs> go to a sports book, and put money on the line because you know what's going to happen. And then you get return on investment. Also, if you knew that the stock market was going to absolutely crash and crater and the banks would be depleted of money and there'd be no money in investments, what would you do now? You would take it all out. You would not invest in that because you knew there'd be no return on that investment. If you had knowledge of what was going to happen in the future, it would change the way you would live now and you would not invest in any of that. That is also true with resurrection. If you knew there would be no resurrection, there would be no life beyond the grave, then what would you do with your bodies now? What does it matter? If there's no eternal life, if it's just we live and we die and that's it, who cares what you do? Your life is so short has no eternal significance, no eternal value. This shell that you live in is just dust, and to dust it returns, and it has no ongoing meaning or value whatsoever. So you might as well just do whatever you want with it now. Seek all the pleasure you can, because it's short-lived, and you're going to die soon anyways. And that was the ethic that had been carried out by some in Corinth. There's no resurrection. It doesn't matter what you do. Why invest in morality and ethics if your life has no eternal meaning? As a sidebar, I think the fact that we as humans pursue ethical decisions, all of us, Christian or not, made in the image of God, all of us, have some desire in us to live ethically and do what's right, and that is only there because we know instinctually that our life has significance and value beyond just here on earth. That's hardwired in us. Eternity is hardwired in us. If there was no eternal value to our lives, there would be no justification for ethical decisions at all. And some in Corinth had started to live like that because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And Paul, frankly, says, knock it off. Wake up. He ends with the final, stern warning. Wake up, you fools. What you do has eternal value because there is a resurrection. What you do in this life matters. What you do with your body matters. What you do with your heart, mind, and soul matters. You as an individual, as a person, you matter because you will live on. 
that what you do has eternal significance. It is not die and be forgotten and that's it. There's a resurrection, an eternal life for you, so what you do matters. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. There's a resurrection. Because there's a resurrection, your life and what you do now has eternal significance. If the resurrection is real, your struggles have significance. They are the tools that God is using to train you. If there's eternal life and resurrection, then your pain has meaning and a purpose. If there is eternal life and a resurrection, everything you experience now is for a greater result later, and it has purpose and meaning. If there is no resurrection, your life is quite frankly pretty meaningless. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, I don't know where you derive meaning. You're fooling yourself. Actually, what you're doing is you're borrowing Christianity. You're giving your life meaning and purpose that it really doesn't have. Unless you believe in a resurrection. So you're deceiving yourself if you don't believe there's a resurrection. Importing some significance and eternal meaning to your actions when you actually say there isn't one. But if the resurrection is real, you matter, your life matters, what you do matters. So live today in that light. The famous Welsh minister Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the Christian is a man who can be certain about the ultimate even when he is most uncertain about the immediate. We can be totally uncertain about what's going to happen today or tomorrow. We have no idea what's going to go on in the next few days. I have no idea what this week holds for you. But I know what eternity holds for you. I'm certain about the resurrection. Why? Because of what Paul has said. Christ is not raised without resurrection. We are not saved without resurrection. We will be raised in resurrection. Christ will reign in resurrection, and we have purpose today in resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you know you will be resurrected to eternal life? The offer that goes out now and every week is you can know and you can have certainty of eternal life and the resurrection if you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as the good news we offer every week, every day as a Christian, come to the Lord, come to Jesus Christ, and live forever in him. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for the life we have in Jesus Christ, the certainty we have in resurrection, the good news that no matter what this world holds, no matter what pains we may endure, no matter what trials you may have us go through, that the end on the other side of death is resurrection and life forever in your Son, Jesus Christ, because he is risen now. Lord, we have this good news to offer to the world. In a world full of death and trial, we have victory in a conquering king. Let us rejoice in him today, Lord, we pray. Amen.